During the 40 days of community, we're trying to do two things. We're trying to deepen our relationships within the church and also reach out in love to the community around the church. And we're doing this because it is better together. And God says that he wants us to go through life together, not as individuals, not just as on our own. So during these 40 days of community, I'm doing six messages on how to deepen relationships. Now this can be at home, in your marriage, within your family, at work, within your extended family, but it's on how to deepen relationships. And then we're reading through a book, chapter, um, uh, one chapter a day for 40 days in a devotional book. And then we're also in small groups and we're studying and discussing six videos on how to deepen our relationships. I want to start off though with this simple thought. We are created for community or we are formed for family. And in Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, the Bible says this, Christ, it is Christ who makes us one body and individuals who are connected, who are connected to each other. And if you are part of the family of God, then you are connected. You are connected to them and they are connected to you. Here is the problem. It's very easy to get disconnected in relationships. It's very easy for you to disconnect from your children. It's very easy to be disconnected from your parents. Extremely easy to be disconnected from brothers and sisters. It's even easier these days to kind of like be connected through your iPhone or your, your Samsung to people you sort of connect, but you're not really having any sense of community. Do you know it's even easy these days to be disconnected from husbands and wives if you're married? And it's easy to get disconnected from church, and it's easy to get disconnected from a small group. So today, we're going to look at what causes that. Why do relationships fall apart? What destroys relationships And on the other hand, we're going to look at what builds them. No good just pointing out the problem. You have to look at the solution. How do you rebuild them? Or how do you build brand new relationships? And conversely, how do you prevent new relationships from going south? Now the Bible tells us we're connected. So how to stay connected. Now many of you are audience connected in small groups. And you're going to have differences in those small groups. The only people... I keep reminding my wife this. The only people who agree on everything are people who are dead. Because <laughs> they don't argue with each other, right? Have you figured out that God likes variety? He could have made us all alike with similar backgrounds, similar personalities. And you go, I get that. I get how they're coming from. I get how they're thinking. But I don't know about you. I have many conversations and gone, huh? <laughs> how did you get to that? Why do you think that? Why do you feel that? God could have made us all the same, but he didn't. Point. And you can see this in your garden. God loves variety. And one of the purposes of a small group is to teach us relational skills. Unfortunately, we're not taught how to have healthy relationships. Yet, they're the most important thing in life. You can have, you can have the greatest amount of financial success. I was with a certain individual who's worth over a billion dollars this week. But let me tell you, 
And he would agree. He's, he's one of the lucky guys who's realized that means nothing in. What matters is that I'm still with my same wife. I love her and I've got good relationships with those around me. You can have all of that. Sans that, you're in trouble. So this is application directly to your life. We're going to look at what destroys the relationships and how to rebuild them. And how do you keep it from happening in the first place? Now there are four negative attitudes that are enemies of community or fellowship or relationship. Four major negative ones. We're going to look at those and then what's the antidote to those. So the first one that's a major enemy of fellowship or relationship is selfishness. Selfishness. Selfishness destroys relationships. It's the number one enemy. It's the number one cause of conflict in a relationship. They want what they want, and I want what I want. It's the number one cause of arguments. It's the cause of divorce. It's the number one cause of war. Let's pop it up to a meta scale. One dictator says... And my daughter knows because she goes around and photographs these things and reports on these things. For example, in the Congo right now, I want what you've got, and he starts a war. Tough luck about the innocent people that get damaged along the way. And the Bible backs us up, by the way. Notice this verse. The Bible is the handbook for life. Read it, get into it, learn from it. Here's what it says. James 1, the brother of Jesus, he says, What causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. So everything starts with this attitude of self-centeredness. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but it's very easy for selfishness to creep into relationships. You know, when you start dating, everything's dandy, handy dandy. And you work real hard at being unselfish. No, you first. No, 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 you. I'll pay you know, and all these things, you work really hard at that. But as time goes on, selfishness starts to creep in. Now, some of you, would you agree with that? Would anybody agree with that? That's a true reflection of how life works. And by the way, that's what we're interested in here. Christianity describes, best describes how life works. Some of you have heard me talk before about the five stages, and this is just one area of marriage. The five stages of marriage and the marriage cold. Now, in the first year, when your darling gets a cold, baby darling, I'm worried about that sniffle. I've called an ambulance to rush you to hospital to check up, and you can just have the rest of the week off. And by the way, I know you don't like hospital food, so I've arranged for some gourmet food to be brought in for you. And that's the first year of marriage. Second year of marriage comes along. Sweetheart, I don't like the sound of that cough. I've arranged for the doctor to make a house call. I've paid extra. Let me tuck you into bed. Third year of marriage. Looks like you've got a fever. Why don't you drive yourself over to the chemist and get medicine? I'll watch the kids. Very magnanimous of you. <laughs> Fourth year. Be sensible, woman. After you've fed and bathed the kids and washed the dishes, you really ought to go to bed. <laughs> Fifth year. For Pete's sake, do you have to cough so loud in the middle of my favorite program? I can't even hear it. Would you mind going in the other room while the show's off? You sound like a barking dog. <laughs> 
One guy said in the first year of my marriage, uh, my marriage, my wife used to bring in my slippers and the dog came barking. Now my dog brings me the slippers. <laughs> Here's the point. We just stop making the effort. And it's easy to slide into selfishness. I've always said, if there was more courting in marriages, there'd be fewer marriages in court. So one of the things I say to my kids, even as grown as they are, from 30 down to 24, I've got four of them. I said, I know you're doing this project, or building this business, or doing that accomplishment, but are you having one day at least a week where you take, you date your mate, you take her out? Don't get seduced by accomplishments, accomplishments. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be a $5 cup of coffee somewhere. And if you get a card, you can get it for $2.50. <laughs> but the point is, take the time because things naturally travel towards entropy. Now, if we all know that selfishness destroys relationships, why don't we change? Why can't we be more unselfish? Well, first, it's human nature to be selfish. Here's how this works. The real deal. I don't think about you most of the time. And you don't think about me most of the time. You think about yourself more than anybody else. Self-centeredness cannot build relationships, and you can't have teamwork if you're selfish. I want, let's read this next verse together in Proverbs 28, verse 25. Let's read it. Selfishness only causes... So, let's read it again. Selfishness... So let's reverse that. Do you want trouble? If you don't, quit being selfish. That's what that says. That's another fresh way of saying exactly the same truth. Now, if selfishness destroys relationships, then selflessness builds relationships. This is the antidote. What does selflessness mean? It means this. I am not the center of the universe. And I start to think about other people. I think a little bit less of myself, and I think a little bit more of you. Philippians 2 verse 4 encourages this. It says, look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. That is a point of conviction today from the Holy Spirit. Selflessness builds relationships. Now, God's favorite place to teach you selflessness is often in your family and in your small group. Why? Because the people who get closest to you on a regular basis can surface things that other people that see you superficially would never see. See, it's easy to be selfless in the crowd because nobody's requiring anything of you. It's learning to get along with people who are different from you, with different personalities and motivations and different backgrounds. That's where you learn to be selfless. Now, since some of you, are in, most of you actually, are in small groups, a couple of practical ways you can practice selflessness in your small group this week. Real practical. Number one is by 
showing up. I mean that. By showing up. You see, selfishly, it's easier for me to sit on my couch and sit back and flick the DVD and watch it by myself. That's much easier. But I need it. I need, and other people need me to be there. So when I get up and I go to a small group, it is a selfless act. I'm putting the needs of the group ahead of my own comfort and convenience. Another way in your small group is by accepting new people into your small group. By not being the click, you know, us four and no more. We don't need any more. Us four and no more. And another way you can show selflessness is by really listening to other people in your group. Now, when you give somebody your attention and you really look them in the eye and you listen to them, you're actually giving them part of your life. And that is selfless. You're not thinking, whilst you're talking, well, what am I going to say next? And, and, uh, and you're not trying to dominate the conversation. And you're drawing out, what do you mean by that? You, you're showing interest. Can you expand on that a little? You're showing interest in them. That's practicing selflessness. Conversely, if it's all about you and what you talk about, that's being egocentric. By offering people your abilities in that group, that's selflessness. By being a host, those of you who are hosts, you're opening your home and you're being selfless. Galatians 6 says this, a person who plants selfishness ignores the needs of others. So let's flip that around again. If you're ignoring the needs of others, you're being selfish. Of course, it's all about me, self. And ignoring God. Whoa, what's that? The person who ignores the needs of others is being selfish and is ignoring God. And harvests a crop of weeds. Now, I'm very familiar with what weeds look like on my property. <laughs> I'm constantly yanking them out. But the one who plants... This is contrast. In response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work, and boy, it's a growing work being selfless in him, harvest a crop of real life and eternal life. So here's your choice, guys. Weeds or real and eternal life. Weeds and selfishness, real and eternal life. Look how clear the scriptures are. And how do you harvest that crop of weeds? If you're egocentric and you ignore that verse says right there, ignore the needs of others. Now this is important because it also talks about the principle of sowing and reaping. If you plant, for example, criticism, it's gonna, people are going to be critical of you, you're going to reap back criticism. On the other hand, if you plant affirmation, people are going to affirm you. You need to be intentional about what you plant. Because if you just grab any old bag of seeds and start, you may be surprised what you get. Do you know what you're planting? Are you being deliberate in your planting? When somebody's offensive to you and me, our human nature is it's very natural to be offensive back, right? But God says don't respond to pettiness. Respond to God in the way that he would want, not the attack. 
Then he says, God rewards selflessness. You see, you get real life on earth, that's the life he wants you to live, and you'll get eternal life in heaven living the way God wants you to live and love. So God wants you to become like him, and the way he is, is he's unselfish. Jesus said, only those who learn to give their lives away will ever know what it means to, there's the same word, notice it, really live. Is that clear? Get it? Good. That's why we're doing this 40 days of community. And one of the projects we're going to be working on is helping the Aranui Trust, the Christian Trust. And they provide child and family support services from a victim support approach. Supporting family breakdown there and single mother support. And single mothers have a very special place in my heart, as you know. So why are we doing that? Why are we as a church, why are we as small groups going to get involved in that? Well, it's to practice selflessness. Fat lot of good hearing about this and not having practical application. It's like going to a Ben as a guitar lesson. And you go and you learn all the theory, but you never pick up a guitar and actually do it. You'll never learn that. So we're going to do this together. Why are we doing this? Because most people have never ever in their entire life helped what Jesus calls the least of these people. And if you don't get anything else, what I say today, get this, that the number one lesson in life is learning to be unselfish. You who have children and have been parents know that from the get-go. It's also called love. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people go through life and they never learned The greatest lesson in life, which is to obey the great commandment. And they waste their life. And they miss the whole reason they're put on earth here for. It's not to grow your retirement and all that sort of stuff. You can have that. But if you've done all that, as you've read this week, if you get all that and you miss this, it's worth nothing. Zero. Great accomplishments minus love equals zero. That's how the math works. Notice, God also says in this verse, growth is a process. He says, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him. Harvest a crop of real and eternal life. It is not overnight. When I spread my seed in my garden for tomatoes or whatever, they don't just, boom, there they are. It's a process to go through. It's not overnight. In other words, you don't learn unselfishness by getting zapped. That just doesn't happen like that. It's a process, and it's going to take the rest of your life as you let God's Spirit work in you. I love this version. It says, live freely, animated, and motivated by God's Spirit. Then you won't feel the compulsions of selfishness. And all of us are compulsively selfish. How do I say that? Because we think of ourselves first. Is that not a true reflection of our real heart? And the only way you can break that cycle is with the power of God's Spirit in you. Anyone, by the way, can be unselfish once in a while just by sheer grit and willpower. But God says, I don't want a one-off bluebird. I want a lifestyle of unselfishness. Now, how do you know when it's motivated by you versus God's Spirit? Well, I'll tell you how. If it's motivated by you, something called pride starts to creep into your heart. 
Look at me. Look what I am doing. I did something good for somebody else. Now, that's how we know it's us. When it's God's spirit motivating you, you won't do that. Now, here's the second thing that destroys relationships. Take note. It's pride. Pride destroys relationships. The Bible says over and over, and here's a good verse to, to think about here, and to look at the truth and how it reflects. This is how it works in life, friends. Because God is the author of life, he says this is how it works. This is from the owner's manual. Pride leads to arguments. And pride shows up in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it can show up first in criticism. In critical people. If you're constantly critical of other people. If you tend to be judgmental of other people. You're judging yourself implicitly as being superior to these other people. If you look down your nose at people, you're immediately putting yourself above people. That's an issue of pride. If you're a picky perfectionist, and that's like a Peter Piper, pick the pick a pick a a picky perfectionist, all right? If you're one of those, you have a pride problem. If you're always comparing Look at her dress compared to mine. (laughs) Or look at his car or his salary compared to mine. Or or you're comparing children. Look what their kids did. Or you're comparing job titles. You have a pride problem. You could have a pride problem too, that's true. Eventually. If you're stubborn and you find it difficult to say these words, I am sorry. I've told you many times before, even in a tense moment when Kimberly and I will sometimes lock horns on things, and don't tell me you don't, because you do. I have found, guys, a very useful phrase. Now, you've got to say it with authenticity, because let me tell you, those women have got the... Ooh, I was going to say something wrong then. A, um, a meter that's in their head... <laughs> But this kind of works. If you can align your heart to say this is with genuine sincerity. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was only thinking of myself. You will be shocked how all of a sudden the walls will come down then. And you start, because you're showing some grace and humility. And that's not a manipulation thing. Do not do it for that reason. You'll get yourself in more trouble. And she'll be able to discern your heart there. If you're stubborn and it's difficult for you to say I'm sorry and you can never admit when you're wrong, friends, let me, be, let me reflect the mirror of God's word right now. Here it is. If that's you, you have a pride problem. That reflects reality. When you're too shallow to care about others because you're so busy wrapped up in your own world, the word of God would say to you in a big mirror, It reflects. That's all it does. It shows you. It exposes our hearts and mine too. You have a pride problem. So what does pride look like in a small group? Since many of us are in this. One of the ways it looks is when you are in a small group and you always have to have a story that tops somebody else. The last story, you know. Well, you did that, but man, you should hear what happened to me. And it tops it. 
If you feel that compulsion to always leave it on the top. Or when you're always offering advice but never asking for advice. You never ask for it for anybody in your group but you're always ready to give it. Or when you never admit you have any problems in your life. Well, you're either deluded or you're a liar because I know you have problems. (laughs) And so do you. The problem is with pride is it is self-deceiving. Everybody else can see it but you, but me. So the Bible says this. In Proverbs 16.8, notice this verse. Pride will destroy a person, bring them down. And a proud attitude leads to ruin. I love the verse in the message paraphrase. It says, <laughs> and remember the message is only a paraphrase. It is not for study. You could read this to your grandkids and they get this. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. <laughs> I love that. It's clear. Pride keeps us from apologizing. And friends, that destroys relationships. So pride destroys relationships. But on the solution side, humility builds relationships. Humility builds relationships. Listen to these five building blocks that build relationships straight out of 1 Peter 3.8. The Bible says this, live in harmony, be sympathetic, love each other, Have compassion and be humble. Notice, live in harmony. That's what God wants in a relationship. He wants the harmony even though all of us are very different. This is a great model for our families, for our small groups, for our relationships. Here's how it goes. Harmony and humility go together. Harmony and and humility. How are you and I going to grow in humility? How is that even possible? Well, it happens by letting Jesus Christ control our thoughts, our hearts, and our attitudes, and our reactions. He has got to be part of this because if he's not, basically, less of me, more of him. Ephesians 4.23 says this, Let the Spirit change your way of thinking. And make you into a new person. That's not on your outline, but I just wrote it there. Ephesians 4.23. Let the Spirit change your way of thinking and make you into a new person. How do I become a new person? How do I start to think in a different way? Well, the basic law of relationships goes like this. I tend to become like people I spend my time with. I do. In fact, I remember even at university I started to speak like one of my lecturers. Some of my accents would change because I admired this guy so much. And if you spend time on the negative side with grumpy people, you're going to become grumpy. If you spend time with critical people, you're going to become critical. But if you spend time with happy and optimistic and faithful people, you become happy and faithful and optimistic. So if you want to have more humility, which is where we're getting to on this point, is you need to spend more time with Jesus Christ because he is humble. And he wants a relationship with you. So that's two things going. He wants you and I to spend time with him in prayer and reading his word and talking with him. The Bible says this in Philippians 2. Be 
humble. And give more honor to others than to yourself. What? Notice this next part. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. Friends, nobody has been more humble than Jesus. Coming from heaven to earth, he condescended to come to earth, to take on flesh and become man, to live for us, to die and give his life for us, and to be resurrected for us. And when I spend time with him, that engenders me to be more humble. Here's the third struggle we all face. Which destroys relationships. And it's insecurity. Insecurity destroys relationships. And the Bible talks about this. In Proverbs 29, 25... The Bible says, the fear of human opinion disables. When I'm so insecure that all I think about is what you think of me and your opinion of me, that disables me and it traps me. So insecurity destroys relationships. It prevents closeness. What do we fear in our relationships? Well, firstly, we fear exposure. We fear that somebody's going to find out what we really are like if we get too close to somebody. And this is man's oldest fear, by the way. In Genesis 3.10, the Bible says and records of Adam, his thinking and his attitude, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. When we're afraid, we hide ourselves. We cover up. We put a wall up there. You're not getting close to me. We wear masks. We pretend to be somebody that we are not. And fear makes us build walls. So the result is that nobody ever gets close to you and there's no sense of closeness or intimacy. And that results, where does that go? If we extend that, what's the implication? It, It means that you end up being lonely. I was at the funeral of a 27-year-old girl two weeks ago. She had everything that money could buy, but she had nobody that was really close who really knew her because she was too insecure to tell people what was really going on in her life. Second thing we fear in relationships is if people really get to know me, they'll reject me. So we fear rejection. And this may be the greatest fear in human beings. The fear of being rejected by others. And by the way, we've all been rejected at one point or another. And we know, though, that hurts. So what we say, we rationalize, I don't like that experience. I ain't going to do that again. So I'm not going to let anybody hurt me again. So I build up this whacking great wall in proportion to the amount that I've been hurt. Now, maybe being hurt by rejection by somebody, maybe a boyfriend who's rejected you, or an ex, or even a parent who said negative, critical things which were not true. Things like, you are never going to amount to anything, or you're not good enough, 
or you felt the sting of rejection by a coach or a teacher or somebody close. Maybe, and I'm just going to put it out there, maybe some of you have even felt it by a so-called Christian. Some of you claim to believer, be a believer. And if so, I am very sorry that you've ever felt that. That is not what Jesus wanted. And by the way, if anybody ever understood what rejection was all about, it was Jesus Christ. Remember, friends, they nailed him to a cross, and that is the ultimate rejection. And his disciples, bar one, ran away. He understands how you feel and have felt. But as your pastor, I implore you, do not harden your heart. That will build a self-imposed prison that you actually do not want to be in. And you will be making a terrible and serious mistake. You would no longer be living. You will be just existing. So it's my job as your pastor to encourage you to ask God for the courage to take the risk to love again, to be open, and to be vulnerable. Because insecurity destroys relationships. What builds them? We all know the answer to this. The answer is love. Love builds relationships. Love builds relationships. The Bible says this. Notice this. Notice carefully. 1 John 4, 18. Love has no fear. I love that. (laughs) Because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it shows something. What does it show? It shows that this love has not been perfected in us. Now this verse is talking about our relationship to God. In context. Always check the context. As believers, we know that God loves us perfectly. Therefore, we're not afraid of the future or of God's judgment because of God's love. Because God's love expels fear and gives, this is a good word, confidence. However, the same principle applies to our human relationships. Love, the same truth, builds relationships by expelling fear. And when I realize how much God loves me, I don't have to prove myself to anyone ever again. I don't have to spend my life trying to impress other people by accomplishments or possessions or titles or status. It's irrelevant. If I have all of that, without love, it counts for zero in God's eyes. Do you know how freeing that is? To not be under the thumb of having to impress other people? All of a sudden, I'm not pressured by the expectations of anybody else. And my worth is not caught up in what you might think about me. But it's anchored in solid rock in my relationship to Christ and his love for me. And it then enables me to freely love others. All of us want that. All of us want to live with that kind of confidence. Where do you get it? The Bible tells us in the next verse, in 1 John 4, 15. All who proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, having 
God living in them, we know how much God loves us and we put our trust in him. God is love and as we live in God, our love grows more and more perfect. So we will not be afraid. That bats against anxiousness, anxiety. Because anxiety can paralyze. Circle grows. This is a lifelong process. You can grow in this. You can grow. I can grow little by little. Now, friends, let me be really real. It does, you cannot defeat insecurity overnight. It doesn't happen for any of us. But you can take the first step. And that's by either beginning a relationship with Jesus Christ or by further strengthening that relationship with Jesus Christ. When you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to the kind of love that can boot fear clean out the door. Because you don't want that in your life. Because fear paralyzes. In fact, one of the verses says, the fear of man is a trap. Like a snare that catches a, a little bird. Now the fourth and final enemy of community is a big one. Resentment. Resentment destroys relationships. Resentment. Job 5.2 says this. To worry yourself to death with resentment is foolish. Some versions just say stupid. It's a senseless, lacking no... Anybody with brains would not do this. That's what it's saying. Senseless, lacking sense. Now, how does that work? Because here's the point. We're all imperfect. So you're going to hurt people intentionally and unintentionally. And so am I. And other people are going to hurt you. That's a fact. Some intentionally, some unintentionally. Now what's, so that's going to happen. What's more important is what you do with that hurt. Are you going to allow it to make you resentful? And thereby carry a grudge? Or are you going to allow that, God's Spirit, to use that to make you a more godly and better person? Now, in marriages, let's take that example. Because I think we've all got some view on that. Personal experiences tell us that opposites attract. And then what happens? It Opposites, what happens? Attack. Let's just say that to be sure. Yeah, listen, Elizabeth. <laughs> opposites attract, then opposites attack. That's what happens. What once fascinated me about you, your laid-back, easygoing personality, now drives me nuts. You are lazy. Get off your butt and do something. That's how it works. So you see what I'm saying? What you were very, this person was calm and relaxed. Now it drives you mad. Or they were the sort of stu- uh, uh, stoic type who didn't say much, weren't too excited. And that kind of attracted you to that guy. But now you feel like, would you please talk to me? Do you have a tongue? And the pretty vivacious girl who's lots of talking and you think, man, she's so different me. And you're naturally attracted because you're not like that. You go towards her. And then later on you go, woman, give me a few minutes to think. I can't. Shh. That's exactly, does anybody, has anybody seen that hand in life? Can I see your hand? Okay. 
we get it. That reflects reality. So what fascinated me now irritates me. And if you've been any, married at any point in your life, let me ask you, based on that, how many of you know that you possibly had unrealistic expectations going into a marriage? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you do that, it's a possible setup for resentment. Because you thought you were getting this, you got that, but actually what happened is you also changed in the middle of all of that. It's often not the big things in the life that makes us resentful. It's a lot of little things that just pile up and pile up and irritate us. And those irritations, when we hold on to them, become resentment. And since we're all in small groups, whether it's at church, you actually probably have a small group at work. I was with a small group of people in the business last week. There was a small group there. And you have a small group effectively in your family. I'd like to just uh, run through a few irritations that can happen and occur in any group. The first one, and this drives me nuts, especially at work, is that if the person is always late. You have some of those guys? And then they take 10 minutes to explain why they were late in the middle of the whole group. Huh? That, can, that can be an irritation. The second, uh, the second irritation is a person who takes too long talks for too long because they love to hear themselves talk. I was in a management meeting this week with a company I consult with and this person was just talk for 15 minutes and the end they had to say, time out. <laughs> I'm facilitating this meeting. Thank you. We've heard enough. <laughs> Quite simply. The third one is the TMI person. You know what the TMI person is? Too much information. They talk about, it could be in the family, it could be in a small group. They talk about a surgery of a relative. And it ends up being an organ recital. <laughs> the guy who has to check the score in the middle of the, you know, in the game when you're in a meeting. Or check Facebook chime that pops up. Put the thing away. <laughs> or the person who's dogmatic. Many of you may have seen this and you just basically, or she says, well that's the way it is. And the discussion just ended when you're trying to mine gold out of the group. In every group, be it a small group, being the family group, be it a work group, there's always somebody who's just a little bit off. Have you noticed that? Just a little bit off. And they don't catch all the social signals. They are probably sent from as heavenly sandpaper, the EGR people, extra grace required. Now, here's the point. If you can't think of who it is in your group, it's you. <laughs> it's real obvious to everybody else. <laughs> What do you do with these little irritations in a, in a group at work or a group at home or your extended family group? Well, first of all, you need to ask God to fill you with a whole bunch of love so that irritation doesn't drive you around the bend. And one of the things, the practical values in a small group is it helps you build relational skill. That's why we believe everybody needs to be in a small group. You don't learn it on your own. Too many lone rangers never have that... That sandpaper that helps smoothen out the chinks on the... We're not talking about bad people. We're just talking about that whole growth process. And you certainly don't learn it sitting in the crowd or in a lecture theatre or in a big company meeting. Sometimes you need to talk to that person and the offender personally. I have done that. But what you do not do, and by the way, that takes courage. What you do not do as a Christian is you do not complain to everybody else in the office about that person. That is gossip. And that's not on the table. 
You need to pray for the courage to confront that person. And talk to, and you don't, if it's a family, you don't talk to everybody else in the family about it, but not that person. You don't do that. Resentment is always wrong. So why is resentment wrong? Because when you're resentful, two things happen to you. Number one, you do not think logically, and you engage in self-defeating behavior. The Bible says this in Psalm 73. Since my heart was embittered, that means resentful. I am furiously ticked off and I won't let it go. And my soul is deeply wounded. Then he goes on to the second part. I was stupid and could not understand. In other words, I was not thinking straight. I'd lost perspective. (laughs) The person you ticked off is on their merry way, enjoying a barbecue. (laughs) And your stomach's left tied in knots. You see, you're not hurting them with your resentment. You're hurting yourself. And the Bible says, right there, I quote, I was stupid when I did that. Don't do that. One of the purposes of a small group is to also help you think straight, biblically and clearly when you've been hurt. When you start to get bitter and you're not thinking straight, you need people in your life who are not bitter, who are not wrapped up emotionally in the situation to help you think it through and keep you from doing dumb things. Look what the Bible says. Look after each other. Next part of the verse. Watch out that no bitterness, that's resentment, takes root among you, that's in your group. For as it springs up, it causes deep trouble, hurting many in their spiritual lives. So when somebody's hurting your group, you gather around them and you help them. And you help them keep from getting bitter. And this helps us grow and mature. This is where the factory and the, and the work of Christianity happens. Because next to the word of God, God will use his people to round off the rough edges in all of us. And the reality is, the people that we want to love the most, can actually, we can end up resenting the most. Like maybe a parent or somebody family member. So what's the antidote? The antidote to resentment is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now forgiveness builds relationships just like resentment tears them down. And if you're going to have a long-term marriage you that lasts a lifetime, you're going to need to have massive doses of forgiveness. There is no way around it because we have two imperfect people. Colossians 3.13 says, You must make allowance for each other's faults and forgive the person who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now why should I forgive other people? Three reasons. Resentment doesn't work, it just makes you miserable. Miserable. And that's not a good place to be. You need to forgive for your own benefit. There's that angle. But also, remember, he says that you have been forgiven by God. And therefore, you're going to need more forgiveness in the future. So you better offer it to others. Freely you have received. Freely, what's the next word? Give. Freely give. You see, we even pray the Lord's Prayer. 
forgive us our sins. What's the next few words? Really? As we forgive those, God, I want you to forgive me in exactly the same way I forgive others who sinned against me. Actually, we forgive because God says we need to forgive and for your own sake. You say, I can't do that. I can't forgive that person. That's why, friends, you can't in yourself. That's why you need the power of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit to snap those chains of bondage in your life. You can't do it. Human love runs out. Does anybody want to give a testimony of that one? I can give plenty. By myself, I cannot do it. But God's supernatural love and his spirit, I can do it. Titus 3. Look at this verse. Once, your lives were full of it. Full of resentment and full of envy. But then, Christ, not because we're good enough. Christ saved us. Not because we're good enough to be saved. We are not. But because of his kindness and love. That's his grace. By washing away our sins, that's everything has been forgiven, wiped out, has given us new joy of the indwelling Holy Spirit. God puts a spirit of love in my life all because of what Jesus, our Savior, did on that cross so he could declare us not guilty in God's eyes. Whoa! That is the best news there. You need a fresh experience of God in your life because you'll never be able to let it go and get on by your own love, which runs out. You need God's love in your life every day. The reality of that. Let me explain though quickly what forgiveness is not because there's a lot of woolly, unclear thinking about this. Forgiveness is not making excuses for that person who hurt you. They hurt you and it was real And it was wrong. Forgiveness is not minimizing that hurt. Oh, well, he hurt me, but it didn't hurt that much. That is not what we're talking about. It hurt. That's reality. Forgiveness is not justifying. It's not saying, well, it was no big deal. It was a big deal. And again, it's not saying it wasn't wrong. So what is forgiveness? Let me give it you in one sentence. And I didn't put it in your outline because it took me a while to get this condensed. Forgiveness is letting go of the pain and my right to get even. Forgiveness is letting go of the pain and my right to get even. Now some of you sitting here today are still allowing people from your past, in their past history, to hurt you in the present. And that, friends, is not wise. They cannot hurt you anymore. The past is the past. And every time you hold on to that grudge, friend, you are perpetuating your own hurt, your own pain. They only hurt you if you refuse to let it go. And God says you need to let it go. Forgiveness is the only way that you can get on with your life moving forward. 
They don't deserve it. And by the way, some of you in this room say, well, you know what's happened back there? Friend, I can guarantee you that's the exact same message that my daughter Helen and Tim are sharing with the refugees who've just come out of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And they have seen atrocities there that you wouldn't even think of in your worst horror movie. The only way they can move forward in their lives is by letting go of the past and forgiving what's happened there. Otherwise, they'll be bound up for the rest of their life. And you know what? They had just been chosen last week for the UN's sole dispenser of spiritual and psycho um, counseling. They are the sole providers in that entire... And there's about... I don't get those numbers wrong, but it's north of 1.5 million refugees. So our problems are nothing, nothing compared to what they have gotten. If they can do that, this is the gospel. It works there as well as it does in here, as well as it does in Pakistan. Doesn't matter. Same principle. Be encouraged by that. God says you've got to let it go. Forgiveness is the only way you can get on with your life. Now, they don't deserve it, those people back there. That's not what the issue is. You're not saying, should I forgive? Do they deserve forgiveness? No, of course they don't. That's not the issue. But we give it because Christ forgave us. And we don't want to be anchored in the past all the time. Resentment turns your heart, if you hold on to it, into a desert. It dries you up emotionally. And here's the problem with that. You don't have anything to give to anybody else. Your boyfriend. Your wife. Your parents. Your kids. You don't have anything to give to them because you're so stuck in the past. You can't get on with the future. And God brought you here this morning with some good news for you. And it's a word very clear for some of you sitting in these seats today. The Lord says to you, forget what happened before. Don't give it another thought. Do not think about the past. I'm going to do something new in your life. I will make the rivers of a dry land, on a dry land, and I'm going to turn that desert into an oasis where again you can grow. Where you can grow. Now you may have had some relational disasters in the past. Welcome to the human race. Everybody has had relational disasters of some magnitude. The question, my friend, this morning is not have you, is what you're going to do with them. And God wants you to start something new today, and it starts by owning your life to Christ and letting him fill, him fill you with his love on a moment-by-moment moment basis. Let's just bow. Friends and family, as we close today, I just want to ask you a couple of quick personal questions. This first one is deep. Who do you need to be more unselfish with? Who have you been critical or judgmental of and you know it's been excessive? Are you willing to admit I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Is there somebody that you know deep in your heart you need to say that to? I was wrong and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. For others of you, are you afraid of being real with other people? And you've held your cards close to your chest for so long You've denied your emotions and really you don't have a sense of connection and community with many people.
other people that you need to forgive today. Friends, all four of the antidotes to selfishness and pride, insecurity and resentment are found in a relationship to Jesus. Not in the book, but in the person. You get that relationship lined up and the other ones will fall into place much easier. This is what it is, is the lordship of Christ. Allowing him to be the lord and the manager and following through on what you know he would want you to do. Would you fill him, let him fill you with his love today? Just pray this prayer in your heart. Dear Jesus, you know about every relationship I've ever had. The good ones and the not so good ones. And you know how selfishness and pride and insecurity and resentment can mess them up. I admit today, Lord, that I need your help. Jesus, in my life and in my relationships, and as much as I understand it, I ask you, Jesus, to come into my life and to forgive my sins. Live through me. Put your love in me. And I want a fresh start that you offer. I pray this in the powerful and matchless name of the one and only Son of God. Amen.